Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room Podcast Editor. Thanks for joining us today. On today's episode, we have a part of our ongoing series on the emerging environment in the Indo-Pacific region. And this series has been produced in collaboration with the United States Military Academy at West Point's Department of Social Sciences as part of the 2019 Senior Conference. The Senior Conference provides a forum for distinguished scholars, practitioners, and government officials to engage in candid discussions on topics of national security importance. Senior Conference is made possible by the generous support of the Rupert S. Johnson Grand Strategy Program and the Association of Graduates. And War Room is proud to help continue this conversation online. Today we want to think about how demographic change relates to security. And this is an important question and one where some of the conclusions might be counterintuitive or vary depending on the country and the region in question. So in some parts of the world we have what we call a youth bulge, that is a population where a large proportion of young people compared to other age brackets. And in other places, aging is the primary thing that we want to, to consider. So here to talk about this in the Indo-Pacific region, and particularly in Japan, I'm pleased to have with me Dr. Jennifer Shuba, and she is the Stanley J. Buckman Professor of International Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, and a Global Fellow with the Environmental Change and Security Program at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. She is the author of two books on the subject. The first is The Future Faces of War, Population and National Security, which was published in 2011, and the second is Everybody Counts, which will be out with W.W. Norton in 2020. So, Jen, it's great to have you here today. Thank you, Jackie. Glad to be here. All right. So I'm going to ask you first for a very fast crash course in demographics in the Indo-Pacific region and, and sort of what the major trends are that we need to be aware of. Sure. Well, the thing about the Indo-Pacific region is that we've got a world of 7.6 billion people and over half of them live in this region alone. So it's an incredibly important region just in terms of population growth. Our two biggest countries in the entire world are there. And of course, there's a whole lot of politics going on there as well. Mm -hmm. So when I think about demographics in that region, obviously there are a lot of trends, but the ones I try to point people to um, particularly our aging and then a little bit about migration as well. So um, population aging to kind of lead off. The region is home to a large population. It's also home to the world's oldest population, um, the world's oldest country, and that's Japan. And this isn't obviously world's oldest country as if it's the first country that ever existed, but it's the population like in the, the world that is the oldest. The mean population. Yeah, the median age. So Japan is leading the way with population aging. So they have um, a median age right now of 46 years. So half the population is under that and half the population is over that. And just to put a contrast on that, Niger is the youngest country in the world and their median age is around 14 or 15 years. Oh, wow, that's so a huge difference. Way different, way okay. different. You think about what that means in terms of um, what the population needs. That's why population aging rates so high on people's radars. So Japan is leading the way, and I know we'll talk more about Japan a little bit um, later, I'm sure, but 
they're some place to study because they're the first. So they're okay. really the vanguard of population aging. Because if you think about it, in all of human history, we have never had aging populations. Sure, life expectancies are such that that's yeah. a new problem. It's a new or a new issue. Okay. So there's your counterintuitive okay. part. We gotta be careful about the problem. It's wonderful. How fantastic that we live in a world where we have a problem, this is my air quotes, of population right. aging. Because that means that life expectancy for infants and children is so much better now so that most children can actually survive to adulthood. For the first time in human history, non-communicable diseases kill people mm -hmm. all over the world more so than communicable diseases. So we've really seen these huge strides in the way that, I guess, man conquers nature. So population aging is just the outgrowth of that trend and, yeah. and, and a real achievement for humanity. But it's also something we don't quite understand but because it has it's consequences. New. It does. And so I think we're let's get into those. If we think yeah. about some of the other trends, I assume that Japan is you said it's it's aging, are but I assume all of the countries in the region are not experiencing the same. They are aging, but we're all aging, which is good. You're right. either time, aging or you're dying. Marches on. Time marches on. And all those countries actually are most of the countries in the region really are aging because of declining fertility. So Japan is not an outlier. It used to be. It used mm -hmm. to be, wow, this is crazy. We've never really understood what it's like for a country to have high life expectancy and low fertility and a real shift in age structure to these older ages. Okay. But now we see that they are they were the shape of things to come. Okay. And so across the Indo-Pacific region, we see population aging, and Japan is just kind of leading the way. Okay. So is that, um, you said that's a result of, right, increased life expectancy mm -hmm. and also decreased fertility. Yeah. So when we think about, replace, I think replacement rate is like 2.1 right. mm -hmm. women or children uh, for, each, uh, for each woman. What, what do fertility rates in the Indo-Pacific look like right now? They can go as low as around 1.1. Uh, places like Taiwan, uh, it's been about 1.1. And then also, if you kind of look a little bit subnationally, Hong Kong, for mm -hmm. example, would be one of the lowest in the world as well. And then you will have places in the region where it's above replacement level. Um, but on the whole, not the super high fertility rates, not even usually above three children per okay. woman, like you might see in other regions of the world, particularly sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Do we know what what is driving the decline in fertility rates? That's a really good question because I think the go-to in the kinds of communities that we, we speak to most often is that it's the policy that has driven the change. And so a lot of people will latch on to the one-child policy mm -hmm. in China, for example. But really, fertility was already declining in China even before the one-child okay. policy. And if it's happening region-wide, then that policy right. explanation doesn't make it's sense for the entire one. region. No, no. I mean, on the whole, we see that worldwide, that's why it's a very interesting thing comparatively. On the whole, it seems that humans, once they start living longer and their children survive to adulthood, just desire mm -hmm. smaller families. And they have the medical yeah. care and the the ability to choose right. their family size that's right more than we might have 200 years ago we'll go with that sure um, yeah because we really did start to figure some of this stuff out you know the the population decline and this is one of the unique things about population aging today 
um, in this, what I call the second wave of states, which is the, the states that are really new to population aging. If Japan's in the first wave, we'll be mm -hmm. thinking a lot about the second wave for the Indo-Pacific region. But what's new is that the fertility decline happens really fast, whereas for Europe, for example, it really took place over about 100 years. Okay. And so we've got, within this region, um, we've talked about Japan a little bit. What do you think are the long-term sort of consequences for Japan in particular as they look to, to address this question of population aging and as the rest of the world then looks to Japan mm -hmm. uh, for what sort of their future might hold? Well, I think in some ways it might be even easier to say what it's not because okay. really when something's unprecedented and we're talking about a country that's leading the way, you got to use your political science skills to give the best guess, which is cer certainly something that I do. But I think some of the dogs that haven't barked so far are actually really instructive. So one of the things that political science scholars expected and policy scholars expected to see was um, aging states become incredibly pacifist. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've seen that at all. Um, is no the, if I, I'm not a political scientist, yeah. but sometimes I play one. Yeah on the podcast or in the classroom. <laughs> so if I were going to make a, if I were going to make a hypothesis about why, and you can tell me how far off I am, this is because we tend to think of warriors and people who fight in wars as being pulled from the younger mm -hmm. segment of society, right? When we see states, and this is where my historian brain kicks yeah. in, when we see states using young children and old men mostly, mm -hmm for war fighting purposes, like that's usually a really bad sign. Like things are not going well right. if you need um, middle-aged or older older people to fight. And so I would, Im the assumption I would, I would imagine is that if you, if you have an aging population, the propensity for fighting war, going to war mm -hmm. in particular is mm -hmm. decreased. So we assumed. Yeah, it's so logical. And so that's a story, right? It's that's a, a it's a good, it's a, really it's a convincing story. story. And you know what? If you're the you're the United States, it's a great story mm -hmm. because for the longest time, until really we're right there in this moment. For the longest time, the U.S. was an exception. We had this demographic exceptionalism on our side. So if that's your story, that you know what, aging countries, we're not going to have to worry about them anymore. This is a story you kind of want to hear, but we don't really have the evidence for that to play out. Okay. So there was, and so we've seen this logic around for decades. There's an article that was in Foreign Affairs in 1994 by Edward um, Lutwak, who that said, where are the Aww. great powers? They're home with the kids. And it said, great uh, powers, because they have low fertility, they'll be casualty averse. Mm -hmm. And we really aren't going to see the same kind of, there won't be even be great powers anymore. How can you have great powers in a low fertility society? But what that failed to understand was, and, and I, you know, maybe at the time you really couldn't predict this, all the great powers are aging. Right. So this is, if, again, if this is a global sort of phenomenon, then, the, the, all, like you said, then all of them are, are experiencing the same thing, which would suggest that all of them have interests and concerns mm -hmm. based on that aging mm -hmm. population as well. And, you know, also that, that they do have interests and concerns separate from population aging. So I think the thing that we missed was understanding that the threat level could be high enough that aging be damned, we're going to put some resources towards this. So mm -hmm. a lot of the assumption was, okay, if the logic is guns versus butter, obviously the butter's going to win out in an aging population. 
who needs health care yeah. and who needs sort of creature comforts or that's whatever right it yeah is. you got to take care of a dependent population mm-hmm. that's the concern Who's these not dependency working. ratios but what i really like about aging in the indo-pacific region just as a scholar is that it messes up a lot of our assumptions and that's the fun thing so if we're making a lot of our conclusions based on Europe and we really have about aging and we've said Japan's this outlier we don't quite know what to do with them Mm -hmm. but we'll make our a lot of assumptions about Europe but even Japan kind of has a European welfare style model in some ways so the assumption was you got increasing numbers of dependents that means that the state's going to go broke your pie's not going to grow so a greater proportional go towards entitlements instead of defense Mm-hmm. But absent from that discussion is, what if you feel really threatened and you're in this really threatening region? Right. If you've got all sorts of neighbors who may be up to no mm-hmm. good or, yes. and you don't, right, the, Euro- the European Union, NATO is yeah. a pretty different security environment mm-hmm. from from the Indo-Pacific, right? The neighborhood Indeed. looks really different if you're looking out from Tokyo than if you're looking out from Paris. It sure does. And that's, so that's one thing that we missed as scholars, but the second was institutions. And this is where being a political scientist, I think, is really helpful for looking at this. So if you look at a European-style welfare model, then you assume that as um, the, the state has already made these generous promises to growing numbers of elderly, and therefore, hey, the math's going to be pretty easy. The state will go broke. One thing, though, is that not everybody in the Indo-Pacific region has a European-style welfare model. Mm-hmm. So they haven't made these promises to their growing elderly population. For a social safety net, exactly. for health care, for things like that. So you really cannot just make this direct extrapolation. And I've seen this happen a lot in terms of uh, discussions about China, for example, that, well, China's putting a lot of money towards defense, but they've got this really quickly growing elderly population, and therefore they're obviously going to be going broke soon. Mm-hmm. But they have a totally different set of institutions. They have a totally different set of promises to the population. And so a colleague and I from Rhodes studied this with regard to Singapore and Taiwan to say, you know, can we see where this has kind of happened so we could understand better maybe what will go on in China? And so what we found looking at Singapore and Taiwan is that they both started off several decades ago with what we might call a Confucian-style welfare model, which says that as you age, the burden of care lies either with you as an individual or with your family but not with the state. Mm -hmm. And as Taiwan democratized, they morphed into a European-style welfare model. So the democracy itself is actually one of the things that encouraged a shift in the institutions. In Singapore, as we know, it's more of a managed democracy, for a soft phrase there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they do not have the same kind of promises uh, that a European-style welfare model would have. They have maintained their Confucian-style welfare model, and in fact, they even have laws that codify you must take care of your parents, called the Maintenance of Parents Act. So the institutions are very different, and I think we have to be very careful not to just take assumptions about what might happen in somewhere like Europe and then slap them on a place with completely different setups, such as China. With different institutions, different norms, yep. different values. Um, if we think about other other security sort of implications of demographics. What are some of the questions that people who are interested in this might look for or might think about um, as they're trying to make sense of the demographic picture in Indo-Pacific or other parts Mm -hmm. of the world? Well, you know, aging is one of the big trends there. It certainly is across the entire region. And it's also um, bringing in countries that we have not typically thought of as aging, such as Thailand, for Mm -hmm. example. So that's one thing to keep in mind. 
And um, so one comparison I might make is Vietnam and versus Canada, which sounds like these two things have nothing to do with one another. But actually, if you looked at a picture of what Vietnam's age structure looks like right now, with their median age is around 32 years, that's the same as what Canada's median age was in 1990. But these two countries are completely different in terms of their institutions and in terms of their economic growth. So I think that the GDP per capita in Vietnam is still somewhere a little over $2,000 mm-hmm. a person. And in Canada about, was about 21000 when they had the same age structure. So the states that are coming on board with aging are coming on board and they're really fast. Okay. So that's one thing. So you, they do not necessarily have the economic structures in place um, that aging states in Europe had. So just because their age structure maybe looks like Canada did mm-hmm. 30, wow, that's 30, that's uh, where, it's a long yeah. time ago, um, in, in, the, in the 90s doesn't mean that we can understand no. Canada's path as the path that Vietnam will follow. No. And so what are the, if we're trying to understand mm-hmm. what path Vietnam might follow, so institutions is one place that we might look. What are some other places that might help us figure out how Vietnam, for example, might respond? Yeah, I think you have to look, I think within the region is really useful. So what has happened so far? When I first started studying aging, it was around the turn of the century. Uh, again, like another the phrase that sounds, yeah, that mm-hmm. one. So there wasn't hardly anything to study. It was a really new trend. So it was all guesses. We had Japan, Germany, and Italy were your three cases of population aging, and that was it. So it was really all guesses. But where we are now 20 years later, we actually do have some things we can study. So we should be asking what has happened so far Mm -hmm. and stop just trying to project out into the future. So what has happened as China's workforce already peaked many years ago? What has happened? Well, it's still a really volatile region. They still care about defense. They're still really getting out there in terms of projecting power in the region. Uh, So that's one thing. The other thing that I think we need to do is also look at other trends. And that kind of gets to a question that you asked a minute ago. So it's not just aging that's out there. So what else is there? And um, migration is really something to look at Mm -hmm. globally. And we have seen when the Rohingya made a lot of headlines, obviously, in the past few years as a case of displacement in the Indo-Pacific region. And I think what that showed us is that migration issues in that region are really no different than migration issues anywhere else. And I think there's a lot of continuity over time with how states and populations react to migration issues. It is a political challenge when new people come in. And that's no different anywhere in the world. Sure. And so we can we can make some trans-regional mm-hmm. comparisons. We can look within the region. Um, but if we if we throw Russia into yeah. the into the mix, um, which I think for the United States we tend to think of in a European context, but certainly they have vast interest in the in the Pacific yes. as well. And so if we if we think about Russia as part of the sort of broader mm-hmm. Indo-Pacific region, um, what do we what do we make of demographic trends there? Because I think certainly there we've thought yes. about the aging population mm-hmm. and fertility decline as yeah. a real security threat um, to, to, the, them. to the to them and to the region. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up Russia because I think they're a perfect example of where we're very wrong. So the assumption, and 
and in fact, we've seen this published. So former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates said, you know, about a decade ago, I, as a former Sovietologist, let me tell you, mm -hmm. Russia's demographics basically mean we don't have to worry about them anymore. And then there was Crimea. And then there were right. all these other things. And so I think one of the things we as scholars need to try to understand better is behavior of states under severe demographic stress and how that might actually show them to be more aggressive. So in some of my research in the past, I've tried to use power transition theory to understand okay. why Russia would act aggressively at the times that it knows that it has severe demographic stress and to see if that can really you know, help make sense of that. Um, but Russia certainly has the same kind of demographic stresses in terms of aging as somewhere like China would, but we also still see this we might call really aggressive behavior, certainly not what we predicted originally that mm -hmm. an aging state would look like. It's interesting because I think in the maybe the last handful of years, I think the the story about Russia has has changed a little bit. And we, mm -hmm. we're starting to see explanations of this demographic stress as to why Russia's behaving yeah. the way it is. But I haven't seen the same explanations applied to Japan or mm -hmm. to China or other places with with aging populations, which I think is mm -hmm. is interesting that we're making a different set of assumptions Absolutely. based on from an American perspective where we think yes. interests are and how we think interests are calibrated mm -hmm. with internal or domestic mm -hmm. sort of factors and the story we want well. to tell. Frankly, I and mean, it's a little insidious of me to say so, but I think that there's a certain line in D.C. that you want to have a certain set of countries that you think of as allies and a certain set mm -hmm. of countries that you think of as competitors, shall we say, and then you will put on them whatever it is. And sort of backwards yeah. fit whatever well, explanation that's obviously is the thing. So China is going to go downhill when you want it to go downhill because of things like gender imbalance or population aging, when really we don't have a lot of evidence to show either one of those things has Either mattered. Either way, we just no. don't. It's, it turns out difficult to predict the future. Mm, yeah. Um, as much as oh, well. as much as we <laughs> as much as we might like to, um, so if we if we sort of close out this um, this conversation, I think it's a, a really interesting one. What what would you say are the like maybe top three things that national security professionals, um, mostly sort of in the United States, need to be aware of or thinking about mm -hmm. when they think about the relationship between demographics and security? Sure. So one, I would say, is to understand context and that context matters. And so not to think about the trend itself, but to always overlay the politics, the political structures, the economic structures on there to understand that, you know, institutions are so useful for us analytically because they are the filters through which we take what's happening on the ground and spit out some policy on the other side. So we always need to understand that institutional context. Um, you know, another thing I think that people need to understand is that they, aging does not necessarily mean peace. So if we take our youth bulge theories, which show us that when you have high proportions of a population of really young ages, under certain conditions they can have, be much more volatile. Mm -hmm. You might have greater chance of outbreak of civil conflict, for example. We extrapolate that logic, then gray countries will be peaceful. I would warn, as number two here, not to be, not to extrapolate that because um, it leaves out so much about how a, a state's threat environment. And the Indo-Pacific region actually is the perfect one for us to look at. Um, under what conditions actually does a state say, we're gonna take away resources from certain groups and put them towards mm -hmm. defense. We can, there's a lot of those. 
And another thing I would say to pay attention to is your own um, foreign policy goals and how those actually color how you view trends like demographics. So the same trend can be seen as a benefit to one country and a detriment to another just depending on how you view them. An example of this is that, um, you know, right after World War II, really in the early 1950s, U.S. strategists looked at China and they said, oh, look at their gigantic population. This is just an army of ants and it's really going to be their downfall. And then today they say, look at China and their graying population. It's really going to be their downfall. I think that points to perhaps maybe you just want China some, to have the downfall. Some wishful, wishful yeah. thinking perhaps. Yeah. So I think this has been a super enlightening conversation. Thanks so much Thank for you, taking Jackie. the time. I really enjoyed it. And I'm signing off for a better peace. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.